Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I'm excited that you're listening to this lesson. It's the second in our series on why we can believe. In June of 2005, we hosted a vacation Bible school discussing the reasons we can believe in God and creation and the Bible and Jesus' resurrection. Greg Gwynn, who at the time lived in Columbia, Tennessee, came and taught our adult class, and we've recorded all of those lessons. This is the second in that series, and it's entitled, We Believe That God Created the Heavens and the Earth, demonstrating the reasons why we can believe in God and creation as opposed to atheism and evolution. I hope this lesson benefits you. Let me encourage you, pull out your Bibles, follow along as we learn why we believe God created the heavens and the earth. Why do you believe? You call yourself a believer. Why do you believe? Now, I'm not asking you what do you believe. That question can be challenging enough. But I'm asking you the question that really underlies what you believe. Why do you believe? Can you answer that question? This week, that's what we're striving to accomplish is to be better grounded in the ability to explain to people why we believe, why we're believers. As Edwin said, we're talking about important things like the existence of God, the creation of the universe, the inspired Word of God, the resurrection of Jesus. Why do you believe in such things? Now, I'm assuming that the vast majority of us here tonight are believers, and so that's a question that you have to be willing to accept and answer. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us of the reason of the hope that is in us. And as we said last night, that, that expression, be ready to give an answer, actually means to be prepared to give a defense, to defend what you believe and why. And so studies such as this are important for those of us who, who do believe. Now, it may be that there's someone here tonight who's not yet at the point of faith. And if that's the case, we're extremely delighted that you're here to study with us concerning these things because we believe that to a fair-minded observer, the conclusions are inescapable. These things are real, and we have basis for belief. And so tonight we want to continue our study, and we're going to be talking about the creation of the universe, that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that. But I want to try to explain why I believe that, and I hope that you will follow along. I think that some of the things we're going to be saying are obviously things that you've no doubt thought about as well. But let me put together in, in sort of an organized form that helps us be more ready to make that defense. We're glad that you're here. Appreciate your presence very much. I encourage you to study along with us concerning the things that we're going to say. If you have any questions at all, I'd be glad to talk with you later about those things. Uh, I know Edwin Wood, other members of this church, would be glad to study with you in detail about any Bible subject. We're very concerned to know what the Bible teaches and to put it into practice in our lives. So we're glad that you're here to be a part of this. When we talk about God creating the heavens and the earth, the thing that obviously goes with that is a discussion about the theory of evolution. Uh, and, and we need to understand some of what's being claimed about evolution. Uh, we want to show that evolution is not a feasible explanation as to how we got here. Evolution just simply does not work for a lot of reasons. Now, before we get into some of those reasons why we disavow and deny the theory of evolution, let's make sure we've got some definitions in mind. First of all, there is a thing called specific evolution. 
And let me see if I can illustrate what I mean by that. Let's say that you started out with an average-looking mouse. Now, you're going to have to use a little imagination with my artwork here, but I want you to imagine that that's just your average garden-variety mouse. He is of average size and weight and all of that. But let's say that you want to start with a mouse that looked like that and that you would like to be able, through a process of selective breeding and maybe even environmental factors that you could influence and diet and so forth, that you'd like to start with this average-looking mouse and you would like to, in time, change him and you'd like to end up with a mouse that had little bitty ears and a great big long tail. Could you do that? Well, we know that you could do that, couldn't you? In fact, that sort of thing happens all the time. And there's plenty of evidence that that sort of thing does take place in the physical world. Now, that's what we're talking about when we talk about specific evolution, evolution within a species. You can change that original-looking mouse, to, or at least you can alter things so that his descendants look a bit different than he does. But I'll tell you something. When you get done with that experiment, you know what you've got? You've still got a mouse. He's still a mouse. That mouse has not turned into some other species. That mouse has not turned into a lion or a donkey uh, or a gorilla or anything else. He's still a mouse. Now, we want to be very, very clear about this. We understand that that kind of evolution, that specific evolution, evolution within a species, that does occur. And there's much evidence of it. And we do not deny it. Sometimes I think that those of us who are Christians... Uh, are belittled when we say we don't believe in evolution because people talk about specific evolution and they say, you all are just ignorant to deny it. We see it happening. So let's make sure that we understand, that we're understood. We're not denying specific evolution, evolution within a species. That happens. Obviously that happens. It even happens in the human kind, doesn't it? We know that on average we're taller than our ancestors used to be and so forth. And so evolution within a species occurs, but what we're saying is that the general theory of evolution is false. Now, when we talk about the general theory of evolution, we're talking about that theory that's believed by many, that's so commonly taught in our schools. And maybe the best way to illustrate it is to simply look at a, at a sort of a graphic that I think shows what is claimed. The claim is, that all living things came from a common single source. That sometime long, long eons ago, there was this accumulation of a, just the right kind of material mass, sort of a soupy mix, and somehow or another, a bit of energy acted upon that non-living matter, and suddenly a living cell sprang forth. Now, that is, a, that is a process that cannot be understood or duplicated. In the best laboratory conditions, scientists have never been able to duplicate that. But we're told that we should believe that sometime in the long, long ago, in the, probably in the ancient oceans of Earth, all things were just right. Matter was in such an organized or randomly organized state that when energy acted upon it, Suddenly, non-living matter sprang life. Now, it was just a single cell originally, just one single living cell. But that single living cell divided and grew and multiplied and mutated and changed. And now, we're to believe that 
All the living things that exist on earth today, millions of different kinds of living things that exist on the earth today, came from that original source. As I said, it's usually represented that that began in the ancient oceans, and at some time, life curled out upon the, on the dry ground, and evolution continued over a, over a long, incredibly long period of time. Evolution continued, and here we are today. This being so... Uh, the idea is that we are related. You know, a lot of times when you think about evolution, the idea is that we're related to the monkeys or the apes. But really, if you understand the general theory of evolution, we are not only related to the monkeys and the apes, but we're also related to the blade of grass out there in the yard. We all, every living thing, came from the same original source. That's the general theory of evolution. Now, we deny that that theory is true. That's what we're denying. When we say we deny evolution, that's what we're talking about. And I hope that everybody understands that. We believe that the general theory of evolution is not true for a number of simple reasons. One is that it's simply not logical. Tonight we're going to look at some quotes from scientists who are evolutionists. And I want you to be listening for some of the illogical things they say in defense of the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is not logical. Furthermore, it does not even conform to the known laws and facts of true science. And we're going to be talking about that. But for those of us who are believers, we can also say that we don't believe the theory of evolution because the Bible says it's not so. Now, I understand that for the purposes of our study tonight, that will be a rather weak argument because we haven't proved the Bible yet. We're going to try to do that tomorrow night. But for those of us who already believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God... We don't believe in evolution because God said it wasn't so. But we're going to hold off some of that discussion until tomorrow night when we talk about the Bible and its truthfulness. And so, let's begin. We know that evolution did not happen for, for the purposes of our study tonight for the purpose of three simple reasons. First of all, we know that evolution did not happen because the fossils say it didn't happen. The fossil record on planet Earth indicates very clearly that evolution did not occur. Now, you know what fossils are. I'm sure all of you have, at various times, had the experience of seeing or dealing with fossils. I remember when we were kids, whenever one of the neighbors would have some fresh gravel put down on the driveway, we'd get out there and look around, and if we were lucky, we could sometimes find a fossil in amongst that crushed limestone. A fossil is the simply the impression of something that was once living, it got covered over, uh, and before it decayed away, in fact it was covered over rapidly so it couldn't decay away, and the impression of that fossil is left in the rock. Sometimes it's the fossil record of a plant, sometimes it's the fossil record of an, of, of an animal, but you understand what fossils are. Now, how do the fossils help us to understand that evolution did not occur. Well, let's look at it this way. Evolutionists tell us that our modern-day birds evolved from the reptile family. Uh, you, you probably know that. But evolutionists tell us when you see a bird today, you're supposed to believe that that bird today that flies around in the air is, a, is an evolutionary descendant of the reptile family. That, that links go back to the reptiles, to the lizards, and so forth. Now, if that is true, 
What we would expect then, as we look into the fossil record, because that change didn't take place overnight. It wasn't so that one day there was a lizard, and, and, and that lizard had a baby, and it turned out that that baby was a bird. And it didn't happen like it. It didn't happen overnight. Instead, it was a long process. It took millions of years to accomplish this evolution, the change from reptile to bird. And so, what we would expect then, as we dig around in the earth and as we uncover fossils, we would expect to find then a record of that change slowly taking place. And we would expect that we should be able to dig around and find some fossils that have changed a little. They're not they're not purely reptiles anymore. They've changed a little. They're, they're certainly not birds. They're closer to reptiles than birds, but they're not really reptiles either. They're somewhere in between. Now, again, this process, if it happened, it happened over a long, long period of time. So there would have been plenty of time for those fossils to occur. Obviously, not everything that dies leaves behind a fossil. But some things that die leave behind fossils uh, when the proper conditions are present. So we would expect to find those fossils of something not quite lizards anymore, but certainly not nearly a bird either. Now, over the process of time, that lizard-looking kind of thing begins to look less like a lizard and more like a bird. And so you'd expect that you'd find some fossils in that range, sort of halfway in between reptiles and birds. And then as time went on, again, millions upon millions of years transpiring, as time goes on, you'd expect to find something that was almost a bird, not quite a bird, but definitely not a lizard anymore, has evolved and changed a lot. And we would expect that we would find some fossils at least that would be nearly bird, not very much lizard anymore. And then finally, of course, we know we've got birds. So we've got lizards and we've got birds, but we would expect to find these in-between life forms, something that shows that this transition was taking place. In fact, Charles Darwin, in his famous evolutionary discourse, The Origin of Species, said, the number of intermediate and transitional links between all living and extinct species must have been inconceivably great. So Darwin understood that if things evolved, if lizards became birds, for instance, that transitional links, the ones in between, there must have been an inconceivably great number of those intermediate and transitional links. But he went on to say, intermediate links, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change, and this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. So Darwin saw that one of the great weaknesses of the theory that he presented was the fact that he could not show in the fossil record that this gradual change had taken place. I think that's a pretty revealing quote. Here's Darwin himself, considered to be the great father of evolutionary theory, and yet he admitted that this is a considerable weakness in the theory, that being the fact that, that fossils do not bear out that evolution occurred. David Kitt is a paleontologist. That's a $64 word if there ever was one. Don't be, don't be turned off by that. A paleontologist is simply a guy who is an expert in fossils. And here's a fellow who's well regarded in the field of paleontology and studying fossils. And notice what he said. 
despite the bright promise that paleontology, the study of fossils, despite the bright promise that the study of fossils provides a means of seeing evolution. Now, do you understand what he's saying? We ought to be able to see it happening. We ought to be able to dig around and find these fossils and line them up and show the progression of evolution as it occurred. He says, although it holds the bright promise of, of seeing evolution, it has presented some nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. Now, here's an expert in that field, and he says the fossils don't show it. The fossils should show that evolution occurred. By the way, this guy's an evolutionist. He believes in evolutionist, uh, evolution, but he admits that his own field, the study of fossils, does not provide what should be expected proof of evolution. And so, again, we would argue that evolution did not occur now, I want you to get this point. We're not, I haven't shown you a Bible verse yet. And, and we're not going to look at, unfortunately, we're not going to look at a whole lot of Bible verses tonight because, again, we're going to try to prove the Bible as the Word of God tomorrow night in our lesson. We're talking about what scientists say. Now, think about that. Here's, here, here are scientists who themselves admit that you ought to be able to prove evolution by looking at fossils, and the fossils say no. It didn't happen. The fossils simply are not there. Furthermore, we could argue that science itself says that evolution did not occur. Um, let, let science speak for itself and see if, if, if known laws and facts of science can be made to harmonize with this very popular theory of evolution. It's incredible to me that it's scientists, supposedly, who are promoting evolution because true science argues that evolution did not and could not occur. For instance, one of the known laws of science is the law of entropy. Sometimes it's referred to as the second law of thermodynamics, and it is believed by all scientists. All scientists believe the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Now, what the law of entropy says is this. That if you were to take something and observe it over time, there's one thing that always happens. And what they say is that evolution would require that over time things become more organized or more ordered. And really entropy is a measure of order or disorder, however you want to refer to it. And, and so if evolution occurred, over a period of time, things would become more ordered. Do you see what that chart represents? Now, that's what evolution demands, isn't it? Because remember what we said earlier? That we're supposed to believe that everything came from a single living cell that suddenly sprang to life in the oceans? And so you had, first of all, you didn't have anything living, then you had one cell living, and now we've got all of this life that exists on planet Earth. So over the course of time, things became more ordered, more organized. Is that what typically happens in the natural world? Things become more organized on their own? For instance, if we were to perform an experiment tonight, let's say we went out here in the back of the lot and we cut down a tree. And we marked the time and date and made an agreement that those of us who could would appear back here 20 years from now and see what became of that tree. 
Now, we, we return 20 years from today. What are we going to find before we cut down that tree? Well, if we can find anything at all, we're going to find a little bit of rotted wood left. Probably won't even find that. Under, under most conditions, that tree will have completely disintegrated and been gone back to the dirt. It has certainly not become more organized. That tree that we cut down didn't fashion itself into a house, right? It became less organized over time. That's what happens in the natural world. Evolution actually requires just the opposite, doesn't it? Evolution requires that over time things can, on their own, become more organized. That never happens. In fact, this chart represents what really happens. The basic trend is in nature is that if you're talking about degree of order, over time, things become less organized, not more. Isn't that so? This is the law of entropy. This is the second law of thermodynamics. That's what every scientist knows to be true. But the theory of evolution actually says just the opposite of that. You see that science itself argues against the possibility that the general theory of evolution could be possibly true. We could also talk about the law of biogenesis. That's, again, a fancy name for something that's very simply understood. The law of biogenesis argues simply that life comes from life and living things produce after their own kind. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty simple, isn't it? If you see something living, your basic assumption is that it came from a previously living thing, right? Living thing, life comes from life. And living things produce after their own kind. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. You know, when I go out to plant a garden, I want to know if I plant a row of beans here and a row of corn there, that it won't come up rutabaga and squash. Uh, I want things to come, life comes from life. I've got those seeds that I planted from a previously living plant. Life comes from plant, or life comes from life, and living things produce after their kind. Now, that's really important when you're gardening. I'll tell you another place where it's even more important. When we're expecting the baby. Aren't you glad that living things produce after the kind? And so your wife is expecting the baby. And it comes time for the birth, and uh, turns out to be a cat. No. We don't fear that, because we know that life comes from life. Living things produce after the kind. A very basic law of nature. Every scientist believes that. You know, interestingly, here we can look at a Bible verse. God is the one who put that law in motion when he created the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, that's the law of biogenesis. God who created not only the earth, but all the laws that govern the earth and the universe, put that law in motion. And we can be very grateful that it continues to operate to our day. Now, contrast that with, again, that graphic that we showed earlier that represents the general theory of evolution. The general theory of evolution saying that life began in the ancient seas when energy acted upon matter and produced a living cell. And that one living cell then, well, now, wait a minute. In order for that living cell to be there, we've got the law of biogenesis being violated. We've got non-living matter in the ancient oceans suddenly producing life. 
life coming from non-life. That's not the law of biogenesis, is it? But the theory of evolution demands that. It has to be so. If evolution is true, then sometime or another in the ancient past, by a process unknown to man and, uh, and, and that cannot be re- reproduced under the best laboratory conditions, somehow life came from non-living matter. That doesn't happen. Scientists tell us that never happened. And yet the theory of evolution demands it as the basis upon which it operates. Can't be so, can it? Well, so you got that, you got that single cell coming to life in the ancient oceans. Life from non-life. That doesn't work. That violates the law by just... But then, you've got living things producing, but not always according to their own kind. The kind changes. So that all the way up to the most complex living thing on earth, the human body, all these different things came from a single source. That violates the law of biogenesis too, doesn't it? Because evolution demands that life did not always produce after its own kind. It produced different kinds. Millions upon millions of different kinds. Do you see how that the law of biogenesis, again, a fundamental law of science, clearly argues against evolution. George Wald is a Harvard professor and a Nobel Prize winner, and he said this, One has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task, he's talking about life coming from non-living matter, to conceive that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet we are here, notice this, yet we are here as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. Do you remember what I said at the outset, that one of the reasons why we deny the theory of evolution is because it's not logical? I want to tell you something. Here's a guy at Harvard. Now, that, uh, I suppose that if you have the label of a Harvard professor, you're supposed to be logical and intelligent. But do you notice the illogic of that statement? He says, you only have to think about it a minute to realize that, notice, the, which one of these is the label? There it is. The spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. And he said it. He said it's impossible, but I believe it. Yet we are here, he says, as a result of spontaneous generation. He believes in the impossible. Now, that's illogical, isn't it? Now, think about this for a minute. You know, as Christians, sometimes we're chided for the things that we believe in. You know, people try to represent Christianity as not being... I think Christianity is very logical. That's one of the things we're trying to impress in our studies this week. But I want to tell you, that's illogic in its root form. The man says, I know it's impossible, but I still believe in it. Well, okay. That's, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about how science itself argues against the possibility that evolution occurred. Well, I said we were going to have three general areas in which we wanted to make a case against evolution and in favor of God's special creation. We've talked about the fossils. The fossils say no. We've talked about science. The basic laws of science say no. It couldn't be true. But let's talk about this. I believe that the age of the earth also says no. You know, everybody understands that if evolution occurred, it occurred over an incredibly long period of time. And so we could represent the evolutionary timetable in this fashion. Evolutionists typically tell us that the so-called Big Bang that started the 
it was actually the beginning of our universe, that that Big Bang happened about 20 billion years ago. And it's really an amazing thing if you read what these, again, supposedly logical scientists want to tell us about this. All of the matter, all of the mass of the universe was so tightly compressed you could have put it on the head of a pin. The, all the matter of the universe was packed so tightly that suddenly it just exploded under its own forces. There was this incredible Big Bang explosion that sent matter hurtling out in all directions. It was so intensely hot that it took a long, long time for it to cool off and begin to, and some of that to begin to solidify. In fact, these evolutionary scientists tell us that it took about 15 billion years before what became planet Earth had cooled off enough and solidified into a, a planetary form. So the Big Bang happened 20 billion years ago. The Earth and our solar system supposedly formed about 5 billion years ago. 5 billion years is such a long period of time we can't comprehend it. And then we're told that 2 billion years ago, about 2 billion years ago, was that spontaneous generation of life that we just talked about, where somehow or another, in an unknown and unexplainable way, a non in, in a non-living matter, energy acted to produce a living cell. Well, that's, again, building this evolutionary timetable. That happened about two billion years ago. And then man evolved within almost the current events sort of section of the evolutionary timetable. It's only been within the last few million years that evolution has reached to the point where it is now and we have the humankind. And so, uh, again, if, if you were going to characterize it from the evolutionary standpoint, standpoint, our existence is current events. It happened way down here at the very end of the scale. Uh, you hear various uh, amounts of time prescribed for how long men have been on earth, but usually it's four, five million years ago men evolved from the primate family. Now, that's the evolutionary timetable. The key is that if this occurred, it occurred over a very long period of time. Let me give you another quote from that George Wald, the Harvard professor that we were quoting earlier. Notice what he says. Time is the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Now, I don't know. I don't know how this guy keeps his job at Harvard, but because he's saying some really crazy stuff, isn't he? He already told us a minute ago that he believed in the impossible, the spontaneous generation of life. But here he has said he believes again in the impossible. Notice this part of his statement right here. Given enough time, the impossible becomes possible. Do you believe that? Do you believe that something that is impossible if you watched it and waited long enough, it would finally happen? The impossible becomes possible given enough time? Well, no. If words mean anything, something impossible is that. It can never happen, no matter how long you wait for it to happen. But this Harvard professor says if you give it enough time, and again, the evolutionary timetable is there, it's a very long period of time. We're supposed to believe that our universe has been in existence on the order of 20 billion years. You have that much time, he says, anything can happen. Well, that's the evolutionary timetable. Now, 
The biblical timetable is considerably different from that. If you were to go through your Bible and try to add up the information that's available there, you would be forced to the conclusion that Genesis 1, the creation of the world's, the creation of man and everything that lives upon planet Earth, occurred about 4,000 years ago. Uh, sometimes we, you might hear reference to Bishop's, Bishop Usher's chronology, and he was a, he was a, uh, theologian many years ago who did basically that. He went through the Bible, added up the ages of all the men and how old they were when they had their children and all those genealogies that we typically skip over in the Scriptures. He tried to add those all up. And I think Bishop Usher said that the creation occurred in 4004 B.C. Now, some people argue sometimes that there may be gaps in some of those genealogical records and it may be literally impossible to pinpoint the exact year of creation that may or may not be so. I want to tell you something. It's not very far different from that. If you believe anything at all about what the Bible says, the creation occurred sometime in, a, in, in about that era. About 4,000 years B.C. About 6,000 years ago. And then about the year 2000, the famous Bible hero Abraham lived. Moses came along and then King David reigned in about 1,000 B.C. And then, of course, at the, at the break point between what we call B.C. and A.D., Jesus lived and died on planet Earth. And then here we are at about 2000 A.D. So from 4000 B.C. There, to, to the zero year, there's 4,000 years. And then 2,000 more years, about 6,000 years. The Bible suggests to us that the Earth and all that's in it has existed for about 6,000 years. Now, I want to tell you something. If you look at that, there is an incredible difference between the evolutionary timetable and the biblical one. The evolutionary timetable says things have been going on for about 20 billion years. The Bible says that things have been going on for about 6,000. There's a big difference between 6,000 and 20 billion. Now, if we can prove that the biblical timetable is true, and the evolutionary one is impossible, then we can stop arguing about evolution. If we can prove that the earth is young, if we can prove that the earth is on the order of 6,000 years old, maybe slightly more than that, but not much more than that, if we can argue that the earth is surely less than 10,000 years old, we can throw the theory of evolution out the window because we've taken time away. Remember what that Harvard professor said? Time is the hero of the plot? Well, we'll take time away. If he doesn't have time, then evolutionary, can't, uh, evolutionary theory can't be true. And I believe that we can show that the age of the earth indicates that there has not been nearly enough time for evolution to take place. Again, we're going to look at scientific evidence that proves that the earth cannot be old enough to have allowed for evolution to take place. Again, we're going to look at a couple of scientific arguments. One of them would be the depletion of the Earth's magnetic field. You know, I know that you're familiar with the Earth's magnetic field. All of you who were Boy Scouts remember using your compass to find your way when you were on hikes in the Boy Scouts. And a compass works because there is this magnetic field on the planet Earth. You know, it's interesting, though, 
it's a very observable thing. Scientists to this day are not absolutely certain as to why there is a magnetic field on planet Earth. They're not exactly sure what produces it. It's generally believed that there are uh, currents in the core of the Earth, in the molten core of the Earth, there are currents that circulate there. And whenever, now we know this is a fact, that whenever an electric, cur electric current flows through a path, it produces a magnetic field. That's why we have electric motors and so forth. We know how to harness that and use that. It's generally believed that that's what produces the Earth's magnetic field, but it's not known for sure. But one thing is known for sure, and that is that the Earth's magnetic field is going away. It's vanishing. In fact, the depletion of the Earth's magnetic field is happening at a, a, an observable and measurable rate. The half-life of the Earth's magnetic field is 1,400 years. So every 1,400 years, every 1,400 years, the Earth's magnetic field is half of what it was 1,400 years prior to that. And so, if you started out here at year zero, and your magnetic field was measured at, let's say, 100, then in 1,400 years, the Earth's magnetic field would measure just 50. And in another 1,400 years, it'd be half of that, 25 and on down, to where if you got out here as far as 5,600 years, you'd have almost none of it left. That's the, that's, we understand that that's how a half-life works. In other words, if the half-life is 1,400 years, every 1,400 years, it's half of what it was before. Now, that's measurable. Scientists can measure that. We know that to be a fact. Here's what we can do then. If we know that as a fact, you can figure backwards, right? If you know what it is today, then you can calculate backwards and figure out what it was. How, in other words, it would have been stronger 1,400 years ago. In fact, it would have been twice as strong as it is now. In fact, scientists are telling us that if time goes on, that within about another 2,000 to 3,000 years, the Earth's magnetic field is not going to be usable for the purposes that we use it today, navigation and so forth. But they'll come up with something else. Don't worry about that. That's way past our lifetimes. But if it's going away, we can calculate how strong it used to be. 1,400 years ago, it was twice as strong as it now is. 2,800 years ago, it was four times greater than it is now. 5,600 years ago, it was eight times stronger than it is now. You know what? Scientists argue that under those assumptions, less than 10,000 years ago, somewhere around 10,000 years ago, if the Earth had been here 10,000 years ago, the magnetic forces of the Earth would have been so strong that the planet would have disintegrated from its own internal forces. One of my earliest remembrances of going to church was that my mom would keep a couple, just a couple of little toys in her purse to keep me quiet during church services. And she had a couple of little Scotty dogs, a black one and a white one, that were mounted on little magnetic bases. And I, used, I can remember playing with those in church. And even when I was a little kid, I knew that you could take those little Scotty dogs, you could hold them one to and they'd go right together if you held them one. But you could turn them just half, and boy, those little dogs would just fight for all they were to get away from each other. They would repel one another. Magnetic force. What we're saying is that scientists acknowledge that 10,000 years ago, the magnetic forces within the Earth would have been so powerful that the planet would have disintegrated from its own internal forces. What's that tell you? It tells you that the planet must be something less than 10,000 years old, doesn't it? From those considerations. Quickly, we're running out of time. We can talk about the shrinkage of the sun. 
Do you know our sun is shrinking? It's actually shrinking uh, fairly rapidly. Don't get alarmed. It's not going to burn up within our lifetime. But the, the sun is shrinking at a rate of one-tenth of one percent every hundred years. Well, that doesn't sound like much, does it? One-tenth of one hundred, one-tenth of one percent every hundred years. But that works out to five feet every hour. The diameter of the sun is growing smaller by five feet every hour. Now, we know the sun is huge, but it's like what it is is just a burning mass out there in space, right? It's burning up. When things burn, they burn up, right? We know that. The sun is burning up. It's shrinking. Scientists have been able to measure that shrinkage of the sun. They know the rate. Now, since we know, again, how fast the sun is shrinking, we can calculate how big it used to be. Okay? So let this represent today. Let that little green dot right there represent planet Earth, and this red dot represent the sun. It's not the scale. Don't measure. It's not the scale. But if we know the, the, the rate at which the sun is shrinking or burning up, we can calculate how big it would have been, for instance, 100,000 years ago. If the sun existed 100,000 years ago, it would have been uh, twice as big as it is today. We're moving into the summer month. It's going to be hot and humid here in the next few weeks. I'm going to tell you something. If the sun was twice as big as it is, you talk about a long, hot summer. It'd be worse than that. We couldn't exist here. Just 100,000 years ago. Again, 100,000 years ago, that's, that's like current events to a, to a evolutionist. But 100,000 years ago, the earth would have been so hot from its proximity to the sun, the sun being twice as big as it is now, life could not have existed here on planet earth just 100,000 years ago. Here's what it's interesting. If you back that up to 20 million years ago, 20 million years ago, the sun would have been so large. Do you see where earth is there? There's the earth within the circumference of the sun 20 million years ago. Well, again, 20 million years ago is not that long ago to an evolutionist. According to evolutionary theory, almost all of evolution had already happened 20 million years ago. About the only thing, in fact, they tell us, for instance, that the dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. About the only thing left to happen, according to evolution, was the final step of men evolving from the apes. Just 20 million years ago, which is not that long ago to an evolutionist, the sun would have been so big that the earth would have been within its circumference. Remember what we said last night? There's a very little narrow band in which the earth can exist in proximity to the sun that will allow life. It's a very narrow band. Five percent farther away, we'd all freeze to death. Five percent closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. Very critical. The distance of the earth and the sun is very critical. And the shrinkage of the sun indicates that this, this arrangement has not been around for that long. Even just a 20, 30, 50, 100,000 years ago, it would have made life impossible here upon earth. And so the shrinkage of the sun, again, argues strongly that the earth is young. Real quickly, you've got to talk about a couple of objections. Whenever we make these points about a young earth, people are going to object. Sometimes they talk about scientific dating methods. You've probably heard of carbon-14 dating and some of those. Don't be thrown off of that. Carbon-14 dating sometimes argues that things are millions of years old. But if you study about it, you'll, you'll learn that those dating methods are based upon assumptions 
that can't be proven. And those dating methods are not reliable to date things that are supposedly as old as those scientists claim. Sometimes people say the earth looks older. Well, here's what they mean by that. You know, in the earth there's oil and gas, there's coal, there's diamonds. And we're told that these things formed by natural processes, but it took thousands, millions, billions of years for these things to form by natural process upon our earth. And so they say the earth looks older. It looks like the earth has been here long enough to produce those things. Well, my answer to that, I think it's a reasonable answer is, I believe that God created the earth in a mature form with things in place for us to use them. That God created things with apparent age. He wasn't trying to deceive us or fool us. He actually described that to us. And the proof of that is about the man Adam. How old was Adam ten seconds after God created him? Well, he's ten seconds old, right? But how old did he look? Well, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I know he looked like a, a mature man because God's instruction to him was be fruitful and multiply. We know that God created Adam with apparent age. He created him as a mature being. And I believe he created the planet in a mature state as well. Well, we are out of time. I appreciate your attention to what we've had to say. I hope that you can agree with me that the general theory of evolution absolutely makes no sense at all. It doesn't work. It doesn't work from a scientific basis. And clearly the Bible argues, the last point that we didn't get to is what did the Bible say? The Bible says God created the earth. He created it in six literal 24-hour days in the recent past. The Bible teaches that, and we can believe it. We're going to study about the Bible tomorrow night and prove that it is accurate in the truths that it conveys to us. Appreciate your attention to what we've had to say. I hope this look at why we believe God created the heavens and the earth has strengthened your faith and helped improve your conviction in the face of all those who would attack us when we had these lessons preached, and probably even continuing on to this time. The issue of creation versus evolution is a huge debate. It probably always will be because, regrettably, there are just people that don't want to believe in God and believe in creation. But we believe it, and we know why we believe. If you have questions about creation versus evolution, about God and his power and his nature, or perhaps you have questions about salvation and forgiveness, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. If someone gave you this lesson, let me invite you to come to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have the rest of the series on why we believe on our website, plus numerous other lessons that you are free to download and use to help you be a stronger servant of God. We have audio lessons. We have outlines. You're allowed to download as many of those as you would like and pass them on to your friends and family. Doing whatever with them you think will help glorify God and strengthen his people. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.